to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. Uh, this gentleman's been on my show a few times. And the last time he was on, I wasn't married. There was no pandemic. But, as usual, he's always working. This gentleman constantly works. And he, even during the quarantine, he had a show called Quarantine. And it's Spencer Carrot. How you doing, Spencer? Hey, Cooper. How are you, brother? Good, man. I swear, you know, it's so funny. You go to IMDb and you have over 200 credits. And my wife always watches, like, Start TV and all these old TV shows. And she'll always yeah. yell, hey, Spencer. It's like, I swear to God, you know, looking back at your career, you've been on so many damn shows. I mean, have you? has it ever dawned on you how much you've worked? I actually went back and looked uh, the other day for some reason. I was trying to add a credit that had been missing, and I went back and looked, and it was like, Jesus, like 270-something <laughs> credits. Just bonkers when I think about it. And, I, and I, I started really in 1989, 1990, started getting going. It's hard. I, I can't even wrap my brain around the fact that it's been that many gigs. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like that many, but I guess it, I guess it was. It's, it's really flown by, I'll tell you that. What what do you attest you're constant working for? Because, you know, L.A., I left L.A. I saw people come and go. You know, you, So smart. You, Good for you. Where, where are you, in Philly? Uh, ten minutes outside of New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. But, you know, now what do you attest to you constantly working? I mean, because it's one of those things, you know, you're a character actor, and character actors work, and then sometimes you don't work, and sometimes it takes a layoff. What do you attest to you constantly? Because you have constantly worked since I've known you. What do you attest to years of just constantly getting bookings? This sounds really kind of cheesy and cliche, but I'm going to go with it. I like to think it's because of uh, a really good work ethic. I love, I love showing up to set. I love being on the set. I love. Uh, everything about it. I love the craft service. I love being in the in the hair and makeup trailer in the morning. I love the camaraderie among the castmates. I just love it so much. I've been doing it for close to 35 years now, and I'm never not thrilled when I walk onto a set. So I like to think that it's, I still have the joy for it. I still have the passion for it. And uh, I mean, I don't know if that that's why what what's translating into constantly working i'm grateful for that but um i've never lost my desire to keep working and to keep getting better and looking for different kinds of roles there was a i think you and i the first time we met we talked about there was a time where for the first 15 or 20 years or so of my career i was playing a lot of the same types of guys and then i kind of got a role in a michael mann film called public enemies and that kind of changed things around for me and it opened up a lot of doors and gave me the ability to play lots of different kinds of roles that I'd been wanting to do for a long time and really be a character actor. But um, I don't know, man. I, you know, I study, I work hard, I try to be professional, I show up on time, I treat people kindly, and I hope people say that about me. And, you know, it's translated into some, some good work. And, um, about 10 or 15 years ago, my career kind of turned a corner. And uh, when I got into my sort of mid to late 40s and I kind of kicked into another gear and uh, got into doing more character stuff. And those guys for me growing up, those the character guys, uh, 
for me, the Robert Duvalls and the Chris Coopers and the Dustin Hoffmans and uh, Jack Warden, people like that. Those were the guys that you saw them in every movie and every TV show, whether it was an episode of Columbo or all the president's men, all a lot of the same guys tended to turn up in guest guest star roles and nice supporting roles and features. And I remember kind of clocking that when I was a young actor and going, damn, that's the kind of actor I want to be. I want to be, I don't need, I don't need to be the star. I just want to be the guy that they bring off the bench, you know, in the, in the, in the fifth inning and say, come on in and hit a double for us. I like those kinds of actors and I, and I kind of pride myself on being one of them. Now you grew up, your mom was an actor and the president of SAG, but I've read somewhere that your, your grandparents owned, ran a showboat or something like that. There was a theater uh, on the Goldenrod showboat, uh, which was docked in St. Louis on the Mississippi River. And there was a theater on the showboat. And my grandma and grandpa ran the theater and they were stock players in this theater company that that was on the theater. And my mom and my aunt, who's also an actress, Nancy Devlin, uh, who followed my mom to New York. uh, Actually, she preceded my mom to New York, I believe, in the early 50s. My Aunt Nancy went to New York, and then my mom followed her. They both worked in theater on Broadway and live television for years. But my grandparents had this theater on the on the Goldenrod Showboat, and it was basically a floating theater. And it would go up and down the Mississippi River, and they would stop in little towns like St. Joe and Joplin and Hannibal, and people would come onto the boat, and they'd do a play, and they'd sail on down to the next town. And uh, I love being a part of that kind of theater history. So... That's uh, that's my that's my legacy. Those are my those are my grandparents. My gra- my grandfather was a, a wonderful character actor uh, into into his late sixties, early seventies. He did everything from Gunsmoke and Mannix, and he guested on the Real McCoys on my mom's show several times. And uh, and my grandma was an actress for a time, and then she became a, a talent agent for a long time. So you know, I'm it's. It's in my it's in my blood. It's in my DNA. I now, can't avoid it. Now, what's it like? You know, you grew up. Your mom was an actress. Like my mom was a market research manager for Campbell's Soup. There's nothing glamorous about that. Same except, thing. Same except, thing. Yeah, except she was, you know, she was one of the first female yuppies. I mean, she graduated the University of Temple in 1952, and there was no women who were marketing majors then. But you right. grow up like that. But what's it growing up like when you go out and people recognize your mom? Does it just become normal when you're a kid and you see that? I remember being a kid and my mom took me to the Academy Awards, I think when I was about 10 years old, I think it was the first time. We used to go a lot during the time when she was president of SAG. And I think the first time I went, I was 10 and it was the year that Tatum O'Neill won for for Paper Moon. And I remember my mom had beautiful red hair. She looked a lot like Anne Margaret. And... um, she was mistaken for Anne Margaret a lot. Not a bad person to be compared to. And uh, they actually shared a, uh, a, a boyfriend at one, at one time, a guy named Roger Smith, who, uh, not shared at the same time, uh, to be clear. But, right, but, but Roger Smith ended up marrying Anne Margaret. They were married for a long time. But my mom and Roger uh, dated for a time in the 50s, early 60s, and they did theater together. And, but I remember going to the Oscars and... My mom had this beautiful gown that Edith Head, the famous costume designer, had designed for her. And it was made out of blue, it was silk, and it was covered in blue turkey feathers, these big, gigantic, dyed blue turkey feathers. And they, you, she would walk down 
the aisle and the turkey feathers would sort of fly off the dress. And it was this very elegant, beautiful, ostentatious thing. And I remember, and I was in my little tuxedo, and I remember hearing somebody go, Anne, Anne. And my mom turned around, and this woman ran up to my mom and started pulling the turkey feathers <laughs> off of my mom's dress, like plucking the feathers off of the dress and, and ran away. And I remember my mom saying, like, get the fuck away from me. I'm not Anne Margaret. How many times do I have to tell you? Um, that's when I remember. That's I think that's when I realized for the first time that my life was weird and that I, I – Basically, I don't grow up. I'm not growing up in a normal situation. I'm growing up. I'm in the circus. I'm raised by circus people. Um, when somebody comes up to your mother and starts plucking the feathers <laughs> off of her dress, you know you're you're kind of in a in a different dimension. So um, you know. And then I would come home from elementary school, and I would walk in, and there would be Jack Lemmon sitting there, or Cesar Romero, or Ed Asner, or Cloris Leachman, or uh, there were, and that was just normal to me. Um, these were just friends of moms who I also, I would come home from school and turn on the million dollar movie in the afternoon and see the, this guy that was sitting on the couch a couple of days earlier on the television. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Now, you said earlier, Public Enemies changed your career somewhat with the, uh, the role. What was it like for you when that role came about? Because as you said, you played the same character a lot. You know, that's the Hollywoods. But Not the same, but like a lot of what I, what I, what I used to refer to as pricks in suits. Right. So you played the pricks. I played a lot of lawyers and senators and congressmen and kind of morally bent humans. So, uh, so happened to wear expensive clothes. So when so when Public Enemy comes around, what? How do you prepare for that? Because it's something completely off. Now you're a trained actor. You know you work you work hard. But how do you prepare for a role that is something that you haven't done before? It's sort of like if you know. If you played shortstop your whole life, someone said, hey, play first base, you can be like, well, wait a second. Listen, I, this was, a, this was a, a kind of a role that I'd been looking for most of my career up until that point. And I, I, I think I told you when we first met, uh, they had brought me in to read for this character, a guy named Tommy Carroll, who was a real guy. He was a, he was a real kind of bruiser, a boxer and a criminal, and he had a real kind of mug of a new nose with like a the cauliflower ear and the broken nose. And he was a real tough looking son of a bitch in the photos that I found of him. And I remember getting the sides, the pages for the audition. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to get this. I look nothing like this guy. And I said to Bonnie Timmerman, the casting director, legendary casting director who directs, who she casts all of Michael Mann's films and she casts uh, Miami Vice, and very, very famous casting director. And I'd never met her before. And I said, Hey, Bonnie, I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and read for this role. I said, can I, can I read for like the, can I read for the lawyer or the district attorney or the, the, the guy in the suit, one of the FBI agents? And she said, I've been following your career for 20 years. You play a lot of the same kinds of guys. I know you're better than that. I want to see you play this guy. I want to show Michael that you can play something different. And so she said, come back tomorrow work on it some more. And uh, she said, I want you to get this. I've never had a casting director say that to me before. She said, I want you to get this. She said, I know you can, I know you can do this. And so the guy, uh, you know, this is 2007. So the internet was still around. I mean, it was, you know, it was around. I was able to Google and find images of the guy. And, um, and I went in and, and, and I read with a reader uh, which is also rare. Casting directors, sometimes they will bring a, a good actor to read with you. 
and uh, and I read with this wonderful, wonderful reader, and I just remember feeling in the zone. Something was something was clicking, and I remember thinking somewhere in the back of my head. I remember thinking, ah, oh, this is kind of working. I think I'm I come kind of in a groove here. And the scene was about a ten minute long scene, and we were done. And Bonnie said, "That's exactly what I wanted to see." And um, and I and I got and I got the gig. Three weeks later, I'm in Chicago, and Michael Mann, who is uh, for for your listeners out there, you know uh, Miami Vice, uh, Ali, Collateral, uh, Thief, Last of the Mohicans, Heat, you know, on and on. Incredible filmmaker, one of my idols, and Michael is uh, known for his meticulous attention to detail with actors and. So he had a whole his whole production team made a dossier on my character, like a thick a thick uh, folder with every kind of information you could find about Tommy Carroll, this kind of ne'er do well boxer who was the getaway car driver for John Dillinger and his gang, and he was proficient with a gun and with a knife, and he was an ex boxer and all of these things. So I had this kind of wealth of information to dig my dig into uh we were in chicago we're we were there for a whole month of rehearsal before we even started filming it was a six-month process so i mean you know when as an actor that's what you love you know to 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 get your hands dirty and and get into the muck of of a character and feel it out and flesh it out and find out what you're going to do so that was a great opportunity for me and that's when things kind of kind of kind of changed when that when that film came out other other casting people saw me in that role and said oh he's not just senator blah 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 he can do uh i at least i think i think that's what what kind of turned things around for me so now as an actor how are you dealing with the whole quarantine sets are different crafty you know you just can't go up and take stuff from crafty i mean how how is it explain to explain to the listeners and to me what it's like when you go on to a set now. It used to be, you can just walk around, you go to your trailer. What's it like now? Well, I mean, I just got done doing a six-month shoot for this HBO series for Adam McKay uh, about the Lakers. Uh, it's called Winning Time. It's about when Magic Johnson came to the Lakers in 79 and changed the game of basketball. And it's Magic and Jerry Buss and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And So we're on set. We're tested three days a week. We're tested first thing in the morning, PCR test. Uh, I usually had to come in at like 4, 30, 5 o'clock in the morning because I was in about two and a half hours of prosthetic makeup to turn myself into Chick Hearn, the broadcaster. So I would get there at 4 a.m., 4.15. I would take a PCR test. We would have to, uh, and then we would have to go into lockdown in our trailer uh, and wait about an hour, an hour and a half for the results uh, to come back. And once the results came back, you're cleared. And then you got to go to hair and makeup and then you're in hair and makeup and you're in the hair and makeup trailer and you're, I, a wonderful makeup artist, Jamie Hess, uh, who I literally did not see the bottom half of her face until the day we wrapped. I didn't, I didn't know what she looked like from the nose down until we wrapped the film. Uh, I saw her every morning. She had a, a, a mask, a face shield. There was a, a sheet of plexiglass in between each actor in the trailer that was getting made up. So I felt like I was in the safest place uh, in, in town. 
Um, the sets are very safe. And yeah, like in Crafty, you can't just reach up and grab a banana. You've got to ask for it and they hand it to you through a plastic. I felt like I was in the Andromeda strain or something. They, they hand it to you through a, 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 a guy with a rubber gloves, hands it to you through a plastic bubble. It was bizarre, but it, we got used to it after a while. We just got used to it. And this is a show with a lot of moving parts and some days four or 500 extras because we were shooting basketball sequences in the forum, a uh, lot going on. And um, I, it, it was bizarre, but I felt, I felt safe. I mean, you kind of just got used to when you're hanging out with the other actors in, uh, in the base camp area where all the trailers are, we're sitting there with our masks on uh, and shooting the shit. And when they call you on to set, you, you're there with your mask and they have one of these shields that kind of, kind of sits on your neck rather than rather than a head shield it was like a neck shield it, it came it came up this way um really unwieldy real pain in the ass um and you wore it up until the moment the director called action and then you'd whip it off you'd hand it to an ad you do the scene and as soon as they called cut you'd put the thing back on we did that for six months i did that with uh the show heels uh what that i shot down in atlanta i did it with uh uh billy bob on um on Goliath. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to get a bunch of gigs in the last two years during the pandemic. And so I felt like I was, it was the safest environment uh, to, to be, to be on. Uh, did the last season of Bosch, did several episodes of Bosch and uh, it felt very, uh, it felt very, very safe. Everybody was really extra careful. There was one day on Bosch during, it was Halloween of 2020 last year and some idiot uh, posted a picture, some day player, an actor posted a picture of himself maskless at a Halloween party. And of course he tested positive and they found out who it was. Uh, and they had to shut the whole production down for two weeks. So everybody's, everybody's kind of sitting on their ass for two weeks while they're waiting to, to come back, uh, because one, one bad apple. Um, but other than that, it was, uh, it was, it was tricky, but it was, it was, uh, we handled it well. And, uh, and everybody really pitched in because we didn't want to shut everything down. You wanted to continue making, making television. We got this Laker show in the can in four five, six months, I guess. And, uh, it's coming out in March and we did it all with the, with the most strict protocols you could imagine. So now I want to talk about, uh, the Laker winning time because it's funny. I grew up in the Philadelphia area and I watched Harry Callis. And then I moved to LA yeah. and I got to experience Vince Scully and Chick Hearn. And you know, if you're of a certain age, you remember when it was just it was magical hearing these announcers. And oh, yeah. for you, I mean, if people if you're not familiar, Chick Hearn is is a legend. I mean, he has his sayings. What is it like? For you, especially now, because there's social media, and it's different when people might go, oh, he's no chicken. But what is it like for you when you attack a role? Because I know you played Sean Hannity, which you just probably just had to act like a prick. I played a, I played a lot of uh, a lot of living people. I played a lot of real-life guys. I played uh, I played Bob Woodward a couple of years ago from the Washington Post. I played Sean Hannity. I played Tom DeLay. I played uh, uh, Joe McCarthy. Um I played uh, Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW, uh, very famous uh, union worker in uh, in this wonderful movie, All the Way, with Brian Cranston, who played LBJ. I played, I think, about ten or ten or twelve 
real life characters, and that's that's kind of trippy. It's a real responsibility with Chick Hearn shooting a show about the Lakers in Los Angeles, playing a guy who is so beloved and so iconic. Uh, I remember when I got the gig and I went to the Staples Center to find some Laker memorabilia in the Lakers store. And, you know, there's a there's a giant statue of Chick Hearn right in front of the Staples Center. Um, that was intimidating to me. I thought, oh, wow, I've got a I've got a huge I've got a huge mountain to climb here. I've got a great responsibility. And um, I, I did the best I could to I did I did my own sort of impersonation or my own impression of Chick. Uh, he had a very specific cadence and style of speaking. It was different when he spoke on camera than when he spoke off camera. Um, but obviously all of the sayings, all of the chickisms, slam dunk and the jello is jiggling, the butter is cool and the eggs are getting hard, the lights are out. All of that, I mean, I watched, we shot, remember, we shot the pilot, Steve, two years ago, and then COVID happened, and we shut down for an entire year. So I had a year to do my homework uh, and watch, I must have watched hundreds of hours of, uh, of Chick Hearn and watch videos on YouTube and old games. And I got to the point where I would be able to call a game between the Lakers and the Sixers. I would turn the sound down, and I would just call the game, because at, at a certain point, I just, I knew all the players' names. And I would call the game as Chick Hearn in my living room, like a lunatic. But I had a lot of I had a lot of downtime. Much more fun watching Chick Hearn on YouTube than Sean Hannity. I guarantee you. <laughs> now, as an actor, though, how do you sit there and not slip into an impression? Because once again, he is so beloved. I mean, the guy's yeah. a legend. I mean, as and you want to do him, you want to do him justice because you know, and you will because you're a great actor. But how do you? Put it in your mind when you when you start working on it, saying, "I really want to put my own touch to this. I don't want to just be like a comedian on the you know going, hey, here's my Jimmy Stewart.' Oh, you know, like that. You, you want to sit yeah. there. How do you adjust? I mean, how long did it take you to really adjust to that, and f until you felt really confident with your character that you were doing him justice? I felt confident on on day one. I felt confident. Because I'd had, I think, probably two months to work on it before we shot the pilot. Uh, and I felt pretty good about what I did in the pilot. The prosthetic makeup, I, I, I tend to like to work from the outside in, from the, uh, from the clothes. And I kind of I work the, the other way. Uh, I, love, I love creating the character from the outside in with the clothes and the hair and the makeup and all that. And in the case of Chick Hearn, I went to Adam McKay and I said, I'd really love to look as much like this guy as possible. And they found me this extraordinary makeup artist. They created a, a prosthetic nose uh, for his face and a, a, an amazing wig. And uh, the things that they did with the makeup, it was different in the pilot than, and you might notice this when you see the difference between the pilot episode, the first episode, and then episode 102, the second episode. They, uh, they brought in a new makeup team and made it even better. So the nose is a little bit different, uh, the hair and everything else. But to me, that's once all of that was locked in and I opened my eyes after sitting in the makeup chair at 4.30 in the morning and I looked in the mirror and I went, holy shit, that's Chick Hearn. And that just kind of puts you right in the pocket. There's no, I mean, I'm, I walked out of the makeup trailer and I just felt like him. And you put the clothes on, the polyester plaid jackets and and the wingtip shoes and the and the wide ties. 
and everything about it from the production design to the hair and makeup team to the costume department, everything went into making sure that these actors looked and sounded like uh, like their their real life counterparts. John C. Riley is astonishing how much he becomes Jerry Buss. Adrian Brody plays a version of Pat Riley that people are not familiar with seeing. He plays Pat Riley when Pat Riley had been sort of like knocking around playing beach volleyball for years and he hadn't really found his groove. He came to Chick Hearn, asked for a job uh, as his assistant and, uh, and Pat Riley became Chick Hearn's assistant gopher go pick up my dry cleaning and eventually he became his color man and he had long hair and a bushy mustache looked totally different and then there's a certain point in the show you'll see adrian kind of combs his hair back and throws on a, a different suit and he be, all of a sudden you go oh my god that's pat riley he becomes pat riley so i mean the actors are exquisite you've got sally field and jason siegel and uh, and john c riley and adrian brody and the wonderful actor quincy isaiah who plays magic johnson Everything about all of the elements. When I walked into stage six at LA Center Studios, that was the Forum basketball court, you just felt like you're back in 1979. There's no other way to put it. I just felt like I was, I went back in a time capsule and I just became Chick Hearn. Now, how did you shoot the hoop scenes and the announcing scenes? Now, I mean, you're, you're announcing the game. Are they actually playing in front of you? Or is yeah. it just a shot of just you, and then they shoot? I mean, how? Tom, take take me through. Let's say you're. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the. I don't want to spoil the magic of it too much. I don't want to give away too much. But uh, you've got you've got the actors. You've got Devon Nixon, who is the son of Norm Nixon, uh, the great point guard who was kind of supplanted and uh, ultimately by Magic Johnson. Um, but you've got Devon Nixon playing his father, uh, Quincy Isaiah playing Magic Johnson, a wonderful actor named Solomon Hughes playing uh playing kareem obviously they're not going to find a seven foot two actor so they found these guys that looked these actors that looked like their real life counterparts uh in certain instances they would put the actors on lifts on very tall lift shoes to make them taller i think quincy is six three or six four and they made they made him taller to make him six eight and they would have these extraordinary basketball doubles uh, so you'd see it was the the transition between actor and the basketball double, the guy playing. You'd see the actor playing magic to go up for a, a slam dunk, and then they would cut away, and the and the the double, the basketball double, would come in and fly through the air and dunk the ball. Um, and it's it's unbelievable to watch. It's shot on on uh, uh, thirty five millimeter film, so it has that grainy nineteen seventies look. You look like it looks like you're watching a a basketball game from the 1970s. Um, but uh, the, the, the actors playing the basketball players were fantastic and they were playing right in front of me. A lot of, in a lot of cases, it was a mix of the actors and the basketball doubles. And they had all of chicks dialogue on a dolly cart on a camera cart. And so they'd be going up and down the basketball court. You can't, you're, you're, your listeners can't see me what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm trying to describe, uh, they had a giant cue cards and I would, and I would read as the cards went back and forth. Cause chick talked a mile a minute, nonstop. He called something like 4,000 basketball games consecutively without a break. So he talked for two hours every night, just nonstop. 
And uh, so I had to do that. And I ha- it had to be fluid and seamless. So there were just multiple takes of me watching the guys go back and forth and up and down and, uh, and calling the games as Chick when we were shooting it. It was a blast. Now, now, at the end of the day, it takes two and a half hours to put the makeup on. How long does it take to take the makeup off? And did you ever just want to go home and sleep in the damn makeup instead of dealing with the crap at 4.30? No, because I, I couldn't. My Chick, if you remember what Chick looked like, he had a real kind of beak of a nose. He had a big honker of a nose that sort of hooked down. Very distinctive looking guy. Square chin, kind of a beaky nose. Um, and so I couldn't, I had to drink everything through a straw when I was on set. Because the nose, the rubber nose, the latex nose would hit whatever cup I was drinking out of. So no, I had no desire to sleep in any of that shit. Uh I couldn't wait to get it off at the end of the day, especially if we were shooting like a 15, 16 hour day and you're covered in this stuff. I just got used to it, but your, your, your face feels heavier. Uh, and I'm also wearing a wig about a $10,000 wig that made me, uh, made me look like I had chicks hair. So at the end of the night, about two and a half hours to put it on. And then at the end of the night, when we would wrap it, one, two o'clock in the morning, I'd go in the makeup trailer. It probably took about 45 minutes to, to peel it all off. But again, very, very, you, you don't just peel it off. They don't rip it off because it's all, it's, it's seamless. I'll show, I'll send you some pictures. I'll show you. Um, the, uh, the makeup job on Chick is, uh, is unbelievable. Now, when the quarantine started, I know you did the show. I want to hear about the show quarantine. You did yeah. when, when, COVID started for all of us. You know, it was a weird time. I still remember the lockdown was, in, at least in New Jersey, was the day before St. Paddy's Day. And I was like, thank God I got to go out with my friends that Saturday because last, the year before I was in the hospital. or, or so, I, I missed the last two years of St. Paddy's Day. And you never thought going out for a beer that it's going to be the last time you go out for a beer for however months. As, yeah. a, as an actor... What is that like? Like in the beginning, do you think? Because, you know, at the time there was no production. It's funny you mentioned St. Paddy's Day. I was in Chicago where the river was green, uh, shooting Chicago PD. And we shut down the day after St. Paddy's Day. And you could feel this thing in the air like something's coming. Like it's, it's, it's little things were starting to shut down a little bit. And, uh, and I remember being, I just remember being in Chicago for St. Patrick's day. And I remember thinking, God, this might be the last time I get to be in a bar and have a glass of green beer. And they shut the production down. I flew back home. I was in my house and I, I, I remember thinking, Oh, this will probably pass in a, in a month or two. Stupidly. Um, I went out and bought a ukulele and learned how to play the ukulele and, uh, and worked on my chick hern and watched a lot of basketball, but um, yeah, that was my last St. Patty's Day. Thanks for bringing that up. That hey, horrible. Memory. We'll have it this year. It, it'll be yeah. around. Um, yeah. So, so what, when that closes down, though, you playing ukulele. But how did how did quarantine come out? Because no one quarantine knows. was just a silly quarantine was a show that we did on on Instagram on Instagram TV IGTV. We started out on YouTube. We, uh, me and a, a buddy of mine, Jerry Yang, a wonderful actor, came up with this idea to do a show about a bunch of out-of-work actors who are sidelined because of the quarantine. And so he came up with this idea that we're all in a soap opera. We called the soap opera Chino Hills, and there was about 12 of us 
And uh, he and my producing partner, Jeremy Gordon, who's also a wonderful casting director, uh, he found this terrific cast of actors, Alicia Minshew, who played uh, Susan Lucci, young Susan Lucci on All My Children, and um, great, great uh, actors that looked like they would be on a soap opera. Very attractive cast, uh, <laughs> I gotta say. And um, we came up with this idea that we would do these, a series of episodes and we would shoot them over Zoom like this uh, from three different houses. So we had we had one quote unquote cameraman in his house with uh, with a laptop shooting me in my house on Zoom talking to Alicia, uh, who played the, the matriarch of this family on on this fake soap opera. So she's in New York. So they're filming her in her apartment in New York. I'm in my house here in L.A., and I still don't know how they did it. And to this day, the 12 actors in Chino Hills on the show Quarantine, we've never, we still haven't met in person in real life. We've never been able to have a rap party. We did 20, we ended up doing 25 episodes. We did it to raise money for the uh, SAG Foundation COVID-19 Relief Fund, and we ended up raising about 20 grand which was great. It's, it, it's, it initially started out as a fundraiser. We had Courtney Vance uh, do a, give a wonderful speech uh, on the SAG Foundation on one of his talks to raise awareness about it. And we just kept going. We were having so much fun that every weekend um, we, would, we would improv these scenes. We would come up with a premise, much like, much like Curb Your Enthusiasm or Waiting for Guffman. We would come up with an idea about how these couples would interact with each other uh me and my me and my girlfriend or a couple uh, two actors that live together in one instance and we came up with these things and we would shoot multiple takes until we got because you can't edit on zoom so we would do just take after take after take until we found like we got the right one and then the editors would put it all together in and make a show out of it and then they put it up on instagram tv and uh, we ended up, we had uh, quite a following. We ended up getting some terrific celebrity guests. We got Ra- Randy Rainbow, uh, the great internet star, Randy Rainbow, who became a friend of mine. I asked him to come in and do a little guest spot. Steven Weber, uh, Rob Morrow. And we had some great actors that came in and, and just came in to play for fun and for free to help us out. And uh, it was a gas. And that's how Quarantine was born. Now, you're at the point of your career, I'm sure you got... Out of, out of, out of, like much things are born out of complete boredom. <laughs> and what, what are we going to do with ourselves for the next for the next three, four months? And we, that's what we did. Now, you, I'm sure you get a lot of offers, but I'm sure you probably have to occasionally audition. I know everyone has to go through the audition process. What is it like for a, a guy who grew up working the room? You know, you go into that room. That was that's what you know. You know, I, you know yeah. many of the character actors have said in the beginning there was eight hundred of you guys. Now there's like ten. But yeah. what is it like for you if you get called to audition where all of a sudden you're used to the live interaction? What is it like having to put it on Zoom for you? I hate it. I I, I really I genuinely hate it. I actually had one. Uh, that's I came from one before I came to see you. I I had I had an audition for a a, a terrific. Uh, recurring role on a series um, with uh, with Stallone and um, some really fun material. And there's nothing like I'm 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 a rare actor that loves to I love the room. 
I love to go into the room. I love the vibe, the energy that you feed off of. So I love going into audition with five or six people in there. And for, as an actor, it's a chance to act. It's a chance to show your wares. Uh, we can't do that anymore. And we probably won't be able to do it anymore for quite a while. So now everything is self-tape and it's done over Zoom. It's mostly self-tape. I haven't, I haven't had a Zoom audition yet. I haven't had anything. I would love to audition like this with somebody on the other end of the camera. Um, but most of my stuff has been self-taped and it's me and uh, a another buddy of mine in his garage. And it's like acting in a vacuum because you get no, there's no, there's no uh, give and take. There's no energy. There's no vibe off the other people in the room. So you're just kind of acting with somebody on the other side of a camera. And it's just a lot different. I like, I like having the other people in, in the room to play off of because you can hear the laughter or the not laughter, whatever it is that you're trying to convey. Um, but in the case of the self tape, it's a whole, it's a totally different beast. And I can't say, I can't say I, I like it, but it's the new normal and I'm trying to get used to it. Do you think that will not hurt, but throw off casting sometimes because, you know, as you said, when you're in the room, they feel the energy. They know what you're giving. When you're sitting on a self-tape, you know, you might completely suck, but you have one good take, you know what I mean, when you're sitting there going over and over. And, yeah. you know, do you think that will lead to some bad casting choices per se, where they're looking at someone's look and just how they sound instead of getting their whole body language and their feel? I don't know. I think that remains to be seen. I think it's still too early. The last in-person audition that I had in a room with a casting person and, and other people was for the Laker thing. Um, and I was lucky enough to get it, but everything else since then has been self tape. Um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see because uh, listen, I, uh, this was a redo. Uh, I, I, I sent in an audition to New York for this thing and the feedback was, we love it, but we want to see some more. We want, and they gave me some adjustments. So I had to go back and do it again. And so in that case, you have the luxury of going back. And I did probably seven or eight takes. You get the luxury of doing as many takes as you want to, because it's on, you know, it's on, it's on film. Um, but that's also the downside is you can overthink it and overdo it in the room. You got four minutes to do your thing and get in and get out and they can go, Oh, he's either, he's the guy or he's not the guy. But in the case of the self tape, uh, I was given some notes. I went back today to do it again and make the adjustments. And I found myself doing another take and another take and another take. And my friend, Bruce Nozick, who's a, a terrific character yeah. actor, you know, Bruce, he's been on a show yeah. and I always, I always saw him in that, that medicine commercial where he goes from, animated yeah. to regular every night on the NBC nightly news. He's awesome. He's a great character, man. And he started this great self tape business. He's become like the go-to guy. So finally, after about five or six takes, he said, dude, stop. Like we got it. Just don't overthink it. It's in the can. Let's, let's pop it in the email and send it off. So that's the downside of the self tape is you can overthink it and you can think, well, I've got time to burn. I'll just do as many as I can. And, and, uh, but sometimes the first one is the best one. Now, I saw your post on Facebook, and you were talking about the Character Actors Dining Society. Yeah. Tell me more about that, because I just think that, you know, especially, I try to tell people back here that in L.A., 
you can go out and you'll see people anytime. You know, you can see, you, you can go to Ralph's and see, you know, whoever. And I'm just thinking about some tourist who walks by the table that you will tell everyone who is at the table. But I'm thinking of some tourist is probably sitting there walking by and probably does a, a, a take and then a double take and is like, holy shit, that's like Well, the best so one, talent. the best one was, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a group of guys that started out as, uh, Alfred Molina, who's an old friend, reached out to me uh, and and said, uh, let's have a cocktail one night at Musso and Frank's. It's an old-time Hollywood restaurant. And I said, great, long overdue. He called me and said, do you know Stephen Weber? And I said, yeah, he's one of my best friends. He said, let's invite Weber along. So then there was three of us. And then Weber called me and said, do you know Titus? And I said, yeah. And then Titus Welliver joined. And then Titus Welliver said, I'm going to call Lawrence Fishburne. And then all of a sudden there was me, Titus, Fishburne, uh, and Eric McCormick from Will and Grace. So that we went from me and me and Alfred Molina going to have a martini to six of us having dinner at Musso and Frank's. And that's that was three years ago this week. Uh, the character actor, the Cats, the character actors dining society uh, was, was born. We started out as the character actors preservation society. But that sounded a little bit like we were trying to preserve preserve our our decaying bodies, so uh, which we kind of do with martinis sometimes. But uh, so we are the Cads, the Character Actors Dining Society, and now it's Jason Alexander and Kevin Pollack and Michael McKeon and Paul McCrane and Richard Kind, and it's a it's a it's a rogues gallery of great character people. And unfortunately, like we're running out of table room because uh, the table the, the table gets bigger and bigger. Now we've got Noah Wiley, and we've got Rob Morrow. So there's probably about 12 of us now at this point. Um, and it's a, it's a really fun group of guys. And Now, and, uh, now what do you guys talk about? Because I know when I did stand-up, whenever you get comics in the room, we always do this. You can always tell, because we're so used to performing that you'd hang out at the diner, and you almost always want to stand up when you talk because it's just a stand up thing and you you're yeah. talking over people. Like the only rule the only rule is is no politics. We try to leave politics at the door, which is difficult because uh, we're all very passionate about what's happening in the country and uh, and we want to rag about what's happening in the country, but we try to leave that at the door because then it gets too negative. So you got somebody like Kevin Pollack and Richard Kind and Michael McKeon, who is a fountain of uh of show business history knowledge um you just sit back and uh oh michael nuri who's michael nuri is also the uh the elder statesman of, of the of the gang um wonderful michael nuri from uh, flash dance and now on yellowstone terrific actor lovely man and you know it's uh it's in, in ireland in irish they say it's the, they call it the crack you know it's it's just about it's about the it's about the chatter it's about the bullshit it's about the stories the showbiz stories. Uh, Kevin Pollack is a master impersonator and mimic, and he's one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. I didn't really know him that well before this. Uh, he came and joined our gang, and I just sometimes I just sit back with my glass of wine and I listen to I listen to Pollock and and Richard Kind when he's in town from New York, and uh, I mean they're just uh, they're some of the funniest human beings you'll ever you'll ever meet. And Weber, and uh, it's just a, a terrific collection of people. Just and also just really, really good, good men. Um, so we talk about everything, but the rule is no politics. And uh, we talk, we tell, we tell show business war stories. We tell audition nightmares. When when Stephen Sondheim passed away last month, 
Uh, several of the guys in our gang had worked with Sondheim, Richard Kind, and Jason Alexander. People had relationships with him, so they told their Sondheim stories. Um, LeVar Burton is another one of our gang, and LeVar Burton was one one entire evening he told the the uh, the group about what it was like being an 18 year old kid at USC and getting roots and what that did for him i mean these guys are they're journeyman character actors uh that have been around for a long time that just have incredible stories so uh a lot of people have suggested that we we take our act on the road and make a show out of it uh which i think is actually a great idea Give me, give me an audition horror story from your past. I want to hear, you know, because you've, I, I mean, first of all, how many auditions have you been on through all these years? I mean, it, you probably can't even count them. 8,321. No, really? No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but maybe, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, several, I, over a thousand, I would imagine. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Give, give me your, your worst, the, the, the shittiest audition story you have. Shittiest audition story. Uh, won't name the casting person. It was a sitcom, really dumb sitcom. But uh, I remember the director was Jimmy Burroughs. So I was intimidated by that. James Burroughs from Taxi and God, everything, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and Will and Grace. And he was, this was early, very early in my career and maybe 91, 92, something like that. And, uh, and Jimmy Burroughs was in the room. He was directing the episode and the casting director brought me in, and at some point, and I was in, I was doing well. I was in the groove, and I was getting laughs. And when you make Jimmy Burroughs laugh, that was a big deal. And at some point, I reached over and I touched the casting director, like on the shoulder. It was a woman. Um, like when I say touched, I mean like grazed, like a tap on the shoulder. Um, completely innocent non-invasive uh but it was like in the scene i was supposed to tap the the lieutenant in the police station on the shoulder and i think i did that and this person stopped the audition in the middle of the audition and said don't you ever ever touch the casting director again um now if i had pushed her or nudged her or uh but this was literally like it was the most innocent of tappy taps and ju- the room, the vibe in the room, just like the air went out of the room. And I was just, I was devastated. She like, she just gave me a talking to in front of the entire room unnecessarily. Um, and I, I did not see that person again for many, many years. That was, that was my horror story for a long time to come. It really rattled me too. Um, because it was so, it was so unnecessary and so over the top on their part that um, it just uh, it, it it really it really gave put a bad taste in my mouth. And so obviously they never called me in again for quite a long time. Oddly enough, the the happy ending to that story is that casting director and I have since I don't know how it happened, but we've since become terrific friends. Like at some point, a corner was turned. And now we laugh about it. So there you go. Now, in your career, what? give me a role or two that you never thought you were going to get and you got it. And then give me a role or two that you thought you had it racked up, wrapped up, but didn't get. 
Uh, well, the Mike, the public enemies, Michael Mann. I, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to get that. Um, so that's example one. That was the, that was sort of the game changer. And that was, that was the one I didn't think I was going to get. I had a really great audition for Chandler in friends. And I, and I, you know, again, as an actor, like you never know, you never know if you think you killed it in the room, you could get a call from your agent and they say you you tanked it. You just took a dump in the room. Like you sometimes you can get the complete opposite reaction of how you thought you did in the room. So you never know. And I I thought I gave it. I thought I just crushed the audition for Chandler in Friends. They were seeing everybody. And I remember really, really pushing my agent at the time. And I said, listen, they are seeing everybody and they haven't found this guy yet. And can you get me, can you get me in the room? And it was a tough room to get into. And I did not have a lot of half hour experience. I didn't have a lot of, uh, I didn't have a lot of uh, sitcom experience really at all. I don't think I'd done, I did, I did maybe one or two things. Uh, I did something called Love and War, which was Diane English, uh, who did um, uh, Murphy, Murphy Brown. Uh, but I'd only had a couple of like sitcom things under my belt. So I wasn't known. I was the, I was the drum, I was the drama guy. I was the, I was the prick in the suit guy. That's what I was known for. So I went in and I, I thought I just destroyed this audition for Chandler and I'm in my car, I'm driving home to my little crappy apartment and I'm feeling good. And I get home and I hit my answering machine, uh, you know, beep, and it's my your agent called me. And he's like, what did you do in that room? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I think I really nailed it. They're like, no, you were terrible. Like, they thought you were terrible. And so, um, and I said, wait, wait, what? I I, I just, I, I fucking hit it out of the park. I crushed that audition. And my agent said, yeah, no, you, you, you didn't. Um, and then about three days later, he called me and said, you ever heard of Matthew Perry? And I said, who the hell's Matthew Perry? He said, well, he's getting Chandler. I said, well, He's obviously not going to be as good as I am. Um, a, ma- a master comic actor. Uh, I would have been terrible. Um, and, uh, and also, I think Will and Grace. I, I think I, I, read for, I read for Will. I read for Eric McCormick's part. Um, and, uh, and, and that did not go great. So that's when I started to realize, okay, maybe, I'm get, maybe, I'm, maybe I should just stick to uh, serious roles in movies for a while. Now, how do you keep your head on straight when you do have a bad audition or, you know, you talk about business? This is, entertainment's the most competitive business around. I mean, you know, people sit there and, and, you know, I know now at your part in your career, Patrick Fabian told me a story where even with Better Call Saul, he had to audition for Veep. And then I think he said he saw you and he saw Larry Poindexter. And it's all these guys you've seen over the years. But how do you keep your head on straight when you sit there going in and you know if you get your, like with friends, you got your hopes high, but then it gets squashed. How do you mentally keep yourself intact is it just something you've gotten used to like a callus for a guitar player all these years or how do you keep your shit together somebody once said you have to have the heart of a butterfly and the skin of a rhinoceros um something like that but you definitely have to have the height of an of a rhinoceros say that five times fast the height of a rhinoceros uh you do you have to have a thick skin and i mean patrick yeah patrick was the choice for better call saul there was nobody else i don't think that they were even looking at he 
I had heard about the for the audition about the role. He was like young, handsome, Kennedy esque guy. And before I'd even had a chance to get into the room with the casting person, Patrick had already gotten the gig. I think Vince Gilligan had his eye on Patrick, and he went in. He read a, a few times, and and he was the guy. And he's had this terrific run um, for the last five, six seasons on Better Call Saul. So yeah, it's got to be weird when you're coming off of a, a hit show. And then you got to come in and read, um, but that's that's our lot, man. I mean, you know, you've, you've, you know the famous uh, Shelley Winters story about she- Shelley Winters. Uh, Shelley Winters had she won two Oscars, I think, and this is sort of later in her career, and she was asked to come in and read for something uh, after she'd already won two Academy Awards, and she said to the agent, "I'm not going to go in and read. That. I, don't they know who I am?" Um, she was also a very esteemed and, and well-loved acting teacher at the Actors Studio. And everybody loved Shelley. And she was a phenomenal actor and kind of maybe on the downslope at this point. And they, they wanted her to come and read. And she finally relented and said, OK, I'll go in and read. And she walked into the room and she had like a bowling bag. And she set the bowling bag down on the table and she pulled out one Oscar and the other Oscar, and she set it down on in front of the table on, in front of her in this room full of suits where she was reading for whatever the project was. And she just said, any questions? <laughs> and I think she got the job. I think they were probably so freaked out by that and so intimidated, but they gave her the job. But I thought that's just, that's a, such a baller move. Uh, but you, you can't, you couldn't pull that off anymore. But there's, uh, there's, you know, it's a cruel business, man. I mean, it's a cruel business. My mom's. My mom is eighty-eight. She did. She did uh, Burt Reynolds' last film, a movie called The Last Movie Star, that turned out to be his last film. Wonderful little film directed by Adam Rifkin, and they wanted her. They found a clip of her and Burt Reynolds from Gunsmoke in the fifties, and they wanted her to come in and read. And it was a, it was a part of playing Burt's wife. And my mom said, "I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna." come in and read i'm 85 she was 85 or something at the time um the the, the, there's a there's a a lack of respect and a lack of respect for the history and the tradition and finally they they i i said to the director i said you gotta you've gotta hire her you'd be crazy not to but don't make her don't make her come in and read she's got two emmy nominations 800 television shows under her belt i think she can she could probably hit her marks okay so um you know, it's cruel. It's a cruel business. You well, just have to, you just, you just have to, you gotta, you gotta just move on to the next one. Well, you've done great in your career. We have winning time coming up. What else is, what else is on the, on your docket right now? Is there anything in production? I got one, uh, I mean, listen, you know, the, uh, thanks to Quentin Tarantino, uh, he kind of, he kind of jump started the mid fifties portion of my career. Cause I think that probably put me in contention for the Chick Hearn role uh that was a great opportunity with quentin and um ever ever grateful to him for that um i've got i've done a bunch of a bunch of stuff coming up there's a movie called blonde directed by andrew dominic who did uh, killing them softly and uh the assassination of jesse james with brad pitt uh it's uh with bobby cannavale and adrian brody and anna anna de armas plays marilyn monroe um Fantastic cast. So that's coming out, uh, I think, in the spring. And um, uh, we shot that before the pandemic. 
So that was two years ago now. So that's that's due to come out. And then a bunch of TV stuff. I'm going back to Heels in the spring for season two. Got a little recurring thing on that. And uh, a couple of other things in the fire. I got a couple of things I'm producing. And so it's uh, just keep chugging away, brother. You know, it's uh, it's a good life. Well, that's awesome, man. Spencer, thanks for coming back on. Uh, your Twitter is? Uh, Twitter is at one, number one, Spencer Garrett. And Instagram is at Spencer Garrett, the number one. So people go and go go on IMDb and go go check out uh, Spencer's work and then if you hear this you'll go holy crap I know that guy he's been in everything so people that's uh, my that's my uh, that's my that's my uh, tombstone Stevie exactly. it's, uh, here lies here lies that guy from that thing so people check out Spencer go to my website CooperTalk.net you can find 890 episodes there email me Cooper CooperTalk.net CooperTalk.net Twitter's at CooperTalk Instagram's at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.